So I don't know how why he'd be smiling if he wasn't here when Santa Claus came. There could be a lot you know of explanations I mean? for that, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenacast. I'm your host, Jeff, and with me is my co-host, Alan. On the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. Thank you for joining us for another conversation to provoke your progressive Christian imagination. This week, we are back to a three-person booth. We have a special guest guest co-host with us, um, the wonderful Debbie Blades. If you don't remember, she was on our Feminist Theology episode with my wife and Mona back on episode a while ago. <laughs> I don't remember. I should have written down that uh, episode number before. But Debbie, thank you so much for joining us for our conversation this week. You're welcome. It is a pleasure to be with both of you. And we will be discussing the incarnation today. This is kind of our unofficial slash official Christmas episode. So we'll be talking about the incarnation, how we have held the idea of God as person, and how that has evolved through our theological journeys. And we will finish our episode with a wonderful discussion on how we lost our faith in Santa Claus. (laughs) Have we lost our faith in Santa Claus? I guess I'm making an assumption. (laughs) So uh so let let's get into it. Let's let's talk about the the incarnation. So when we're speaking of incarnation, we're speaking of God inhabiting a human form. So the correct me if I'm wrong, you two are much more advanced theologically than I am, but we're looking at the the quote-unquote orthodox view of incarnation where Jesus was 100% divine, 100% human, two natures, one body. That's kind mm-hmm. of the the frame, um, which it was probably presented to us around Christmas and Easter. And anytime we talk about Jesus, what that means, what are the ramifications for us and, and all that goes with that. So, so share with me a little bit, Debbie, let's start with you. What, how, how did you first encounter that? And what, what belief did you he- hold around that incarnation? Whatever the Orthodox view is, that's what I always held. I was born into the church. My dad was a pastor. All of the men in my family were pastors and in the Westland denomination, which is a cousin to Nazarenes. Um, And so I didn't have any other framework to even consider anything outside an Orthodox view. And I held that for many years. So whatever, whatever they said about Jesus and incarnation, that's exactly what I believed. And I didn't even allow my thoughts to go anywhere else because I didn't even know they could at that point in time. I think that's an important distinction as we're going to talk about this. And I think that's the important distinction as we talk about any of our experiencing conservative Christianity or evangelicalism is this idea of we didn't know there was another way to think. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's obviously our hope for the podcast is that we're continuing to hopefully offer ways, other ways to think that um, give us a little bit more freedom, a little bit more space to move Mm -hmm. in, in our life. Alan, what about you? I'm very much the same way. I didn't have like Christological options when I was younger. (laughs) Whatever was the traditional view was the view that I was taught as well. It's going to be interesting how I interact with that now. But I do remember discovering that early Christianity was a lot more diverse than was presented to me. Uh, We have a lot of the texts of the winners of people who won out theological and political arguments. But like the, the ideas of what you call like Chalcedonian Christianity, the stuff that um, Debbie was referring to that we've kind of inherited and that Presbyterians follow. And what that teaches is that, yeah, there's one person, two natures, fully God, fully human. That was settled around, you know, 450 ACE. 
I remember discovering in seminary that there was like early Gnostic communities and stuff. Um, and there's a lot of things in the New Testament where writers are addressing Gnostics, but um, you don't have that happening unless there's a lot of people who believe differently. So early Christianity was pretty diverse, and it's something that I've really encountered lately. I don't want to jump into where I'm at now, but this is just something that was never talked about because it was non-controversial. You know, it's like, this is Christianity. If you don't believe in this, then you're not a Christian kind of thing. That's how I grew up. Right. Or if you don't frame it differently. Yeah. And I would say I'm in the same boat as everyone. It was, that was what was fed me. That's what I ate. And that's just what I accepted and held as part of, um, you know, where I was at. So then the question is, when did it become problematic? Uh, I, I always hold that when we think of certain terms, the more invested we are in something personally, the more questions we're going to ask, the more we're going to engage in that personal thing. And for me, you know, as a heterosexual white male, it wasn't even a question about, well, where's the problem with the fact that Jesus is a very specific gender, a very specific race? And what does that say about God choosing to reveal God's self in person form that way and uh, never even thought twice about why that might be problematic for someone else. Um, So Debbie, what what has been your journey as far as like, when did that kind of foundation begin to to shake a little bit? Well, that began to shake. um, I would say when I was around the age of 40, Um, my circumstances in life were such that my husband at that time was dying of cancer. And so during that time, um, I actually was in a Pentecostal church. And that Pentecostal church, it was a fairly large church. And I would say more, oh, I don't know if this is accurate or not, but mainstream Pentecostal church. So if you didn't know it was a Pentecostal church, you might not know that on Sunday mornings. Right. You definitely would on Sunday night, but you may not know that on Sunday mornings. But that church really was everything I needed a church to be at that present, at that time. And so, but during the course of that, uh, and then after my husband died, I went back to school to finish up my bachelor's degree. So I started back into education at the age of 44. And it was during that period of time that I began to uh, see shifts and changes in my own theology uh, based on my experiences that I had gone through, things that I had seen during that time. And so always experience should be what's informing your faith and or changing your faith or causing your faith to grow. And it was it was right during that time. And especially then I started taking some feminist courses and then that, although I had a really difficult time transferring that to faith. I could do it in the secular world and and culture, but it was much more difficult to make that leap into the faith community. That took about another year to do that. Hmm. So expand on that. What do you mean? Like, like maybe an example of some idea that was easy to translate into society, well, okay, but difficult okay. with church. It, of course, in feminism, they always talk about patriarchy. I mean, patriarchy is where a lot of it starts and, and, and recognizing that there is a system in place where uh, maleness is favored and at the top of the chain and then all the way down and all the things that go into uh, patriarchy. However, I wasn't able to see that in the church. I couldn't see that patriarchy also existed in the church and our understanding of who Mm. God is, Mm. the maleness of God, never even questioned at that point in time for me. I could do it in society and say, hey, you can't, you know, this isn't right or call that out, but I couldn't do it in the faith quite yet. However, in the midst of it, um, I felt called to seminary to go study theology 
which at that point in time in my life, I didn't even really know what the word meant, but I knew I was being called, of course, being in a Pentecostal church, you know, that spirit stuff. (laughs) I know I'm going because I know that's the spirit telling me this. And so it was really quite remarkable how that all happened. And when I got to seminary, that's when it really to start my bachelor's. I mean, not, not, I finished up my bachelor's at WSU and then I went into my master's at Garrett. And that's when things really began to shift because one of my first professors uh, was a liberation theologian who had come from Argentina. She took the theological chair at the seminary, Dr. Nancy Bedford. She had a huge impact on how I began to shift how I thought about everything. Very painful process, right. but very mm-hmm. rewarding process. I think we've echoed that for so many episodes, <laughs> the pain in the process. But, Wrenching. Yeah, the reward is great, too. I I was just thinking over, like, my own um, ideas about uh, incarnation. In this conversation, I'm probably going to come off as the – I made a joke earlier before we started recording that I'll be the conservative heel. <laughs> and I think that that's probably <laughs> where it will end up. Um, but I'll try to be less heelish than normal, I guess. Uh <laughs> I do have I do have one moment that like I had a really really big kind of crisis for the incarnation in high school I, even though I was like I've always had a very real and present like mystical relationship with God um since I was young and so belief has never been hard for me but like I remember reading you know Ralph Waldo Emerson and then uh there's a, a line about Jesus Jesus not being an artist like didn't sculpt or didn't do certain things so how can he be representative of humanity uh I don't know I think it's the selected essays of Ralph Waldo Emerson this is just coming back to me right now and I actually went to my youth pastor and I was like like oh my god like you know how can Jesus represent all of humanity if he didn't participate in all this stuff and uh I remember the intern at the time was like well, Jesus didn't work with concrete either. It doesn't mean he wasn't like perfect. That was like the response <laughs> to me. And I remember being like, oh, well, that's true. Um, and then so I, I, I really struggled, uh, I'd say my senior year in high school with like, yeah, God, I'm totally on the same page with you. But as far as like Jesus Christ being the, you know, God made flesh, the image of the invisible God, like that kind of stuff, it was something that I actually had to like, I guess, accept when I was, uh, after my like deconstruction, at least in high school a little bit. But the real problem with the incarnation for me came in seminary. I was supposed to go to a different tradition um, and just just experience it, just observe. So I went to a Hindu mandir and watched a worship service, darshan. And uh, there's a room that looks exactly like the youth room. I was my first youth pastor um, youth group that I led. It looked exactly like that. Like everything was the same. Speakers were the same, um, and they had a, a statue that was set up in the middle of the room. And the the main part of the service was this darshan, this holy seeing where you go and you see the deity and you're seen by the deity. Like that viewing process is really important. And this was this was really cool. I loved loved learning about it and witnessing it. People would come stand in front of the deity, like. They believed that uh, in this statue was this incarnate our incarnation of God. There's one God. This is what I heard from the Hindu Mandir. One God, lots of incarnations, but especially in this one right here, like God is incarnate. And I remember thinking like, this is a powerful experience for all of them. It's even powerful for me, and I'm not Hindu. Like, in what sense is like God incarnate in Christ? You know, like. Do their claims have some sort of like rub up against my my claims as a Christian and how does that all fit together? So I had uh, kind of like a crisis moment there, I guess, that's really stuck with me ever since. 
So I'm not sure exactly what I do with all of that, but it's a part of my processing now. I know it's kind of left field. <laughs> no, I think, I think it's good. I think that's one of those experiences. I think we've probably all had that similar experience where a certain group or a certain idea was demonized so much. And then when we right. finally had experience with that setting or that idea, we're like, wait a minute. This isn't at all what I was told. This is really kind of moving and there's a lot of parallels and there's a lot of connections uh, yeah. to, to what we believe and where we're at. And I think that those are not to say that we're always going to have a million connections, but I think right. we need to at least look for <laughs> well, and the fact that And the fact that you felt the presence of God there. I mean, right. that in and of itself. That's actually what it was. It would have been easy if it would have been like, well, this is dumb, you know, or something like that. Right. Um, I guess I actually led prayer groups against, you know, Hindu demons and stuff like that when I was uh, evangelical uh, on Sunday nights, by the way, not Sunday mornings. I like that distinction that you made. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's a secret club for yes. real Christians. Yeah. And if you really want the secrets, go on Wednesday night. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> we don't talk about those. Uh so I, I'll, I'll upload a picture to the, the website for this specific episode of my um, experience there. I took a picture of the Mondir. Uh, and I what it boiled down to is like, how is God present in the world? And to say that God is like um, present in one thing and not another or in all things, like how does all of that work? And uh yeah, I think the thing that we're kind of all getting at, at least with Jeff, you talked about, um, you know, God being male or how does Christ being a man, a certain race or a certain ethnicity, a certain time period, a certain gender. Um, how does that reflect on like the experience of all humanity? And I found it really uh, meaningful for me that. And this is like totally traditional Christology, right? This is the Chalcedon stuff we're talking about. The idea of two natures in one person mean that like, means that God didn't unite with a with a person. It's not as if like uh, the Logos or the the Son, the third person in the Trinity, uh, united with a specific person, but well, united with true. humanity, that's and that true. created. That's not true, huh? Alan. That's not true, Alan. God what? did unite with humanity, which is in Mary. Yeah, so, so what, what I'm saying is God united with humanity in general, and that that produced the person of Jesus. So it's one person, but the idea is not that um, that God is uniting with a and this is so this is traditional Christianity, right? God's not uniting with a human a human person in Jesus, but uniting with humanity in general. I get what you're saying about Mary. That's that's an interesting point, um, but the idea is not that like God selected a uh, a specific person and then unite like, like Jesus and then united natures with that person or united persons with that person. It's just the product of the union of God and humanity. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a weird, have you guys seen the, uh, the, um, the meme going around about Santa Claus, the little kid sitting on Santa's lap. Have you seen this yet on Facebook mm, or anything? I might not have. And, and he's whispering to, to say to Santa and he says, Homo usias or homo, oh, homo yes, usias. I have some, yes. <laughs> and the guy's like, yes. what? And he's like, you're not the real Santa Claus. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's the traditional debate is that it, is, it is God, is Jesus the union of two similar substances or, or like, you know, personhood and substance and how does all of that work? Um, I just find it interesting that like what we really get caught up on is the scandal of particularity. And that's what we're talking about. It's kind of scandalous to think that God would, that God in Jesus would be a specific person at a specific time. That's scandalous, right? Mm -hmm. That's like, 
That's offensive. Well, so what do we do? so what do we do with that, and how do we celebrate right. that now? And what does that mean for God to come, become incarnate? What does that mean for Jesus to be embodied in a human body? What does that right. mean? When I started my doctorate, I was missing some credits because my master's was not a doctor. I mean, it was not a, a ministry degree, so I was missing some credits. So I had to make up six uh, bridging work between the two, and I took. I went to San Francisco uh, Theological Seminary, Presbyterian Seminary, and I picked up five. I was trying to do six in one quarter. Well, wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, I could only do five, <laughs> and one of them was Greek. So I was really, really under the gun. But one of the classes I took was uh, a post-colonial theological class, mm. and it was really a doctorate class, but last-level master's or last year of master's could could get in it, and I got in it. And so we had to read uh, one of the excerpts of a book, a chapter in a book called Beyond Monotheism, a, a Theology of Multiplicity. And uh, one of the quotes, she had us pull out one of the quotes and everyone tell why that quote was important. And this quote really grabbed me. And the whole book is really about trying to start the story again, that that our our thinking has become so frozen in ice, that there needs to be some thawing, and we need to be able to have permeable boundaries. And so this quote I pulled out, although I really couldn't grasp everything at that point in time, this quote for me was amazing and really, really struck chords in me, and I couldn't really figure out why. But the quote went like this, and this was kind of what began my my broadening of my theological understanding of incarnation and how God appears or how Jesus appears to us uh, in human form. And so this is what the quote said. This, and she's talking about her, her, her um, theological uh, formulations, means that whatever human beings strive to call truth is inaccessible to human life except fleshed in the folds of language, culture, and interpretation. Whatever human beings strive to call truth is inaccessible to human form except fleshed in the folds of language, culture, and interpretation. So over the years, I've wrestled with that, and I've wrestled with reading parts of the book, going back, trying to incorporate it into my own thinking. Theological movement is not an easy task. It happens very slow and very painstakingly so with lots of of ups and downs and discarding and kind of sorting and winnowing, if you will, uh, of what works and what seems authentic to you. What can you validate according to Scripture? Is there things you can validate there and say, well, yes, this is what Scripture says. But if I turn it and look from a post-colonial view or from a feminist view or from any other views other than orthodoxy, can I still see it? And if the answer is yes, well, then I know I have room to move. Yeah, it's it's not as if uh, even the tradition about Jesus or everything that we're doing comes to us like a stork that drops off a baby in our lap and we just receive it, right? Like everything is in flushed in culture and language yes. and needs to be deconstructed. And I totally get that. And our incarnation is probably a part of – has all of those as well. Yes. Um, but it's that's the problem is that that it is presented too many times as something that's dropped in our lap and this is what <laughs> right. you accept and this is where you're supposed to <laughs> right. go. So that right. journey of, you know, because even even the idea of culture is used as a negative on a certain side of the spectrum. Well, no, that you're, you know, you have to be counterculture. And just because the culture is going this way, we need to move this way. And there's always a reason why you just accept the 
the quote unquote gift that you've been given and you just hold on to it. Well, but, but there's also, and, and, and as I was, you know, thinking about what I wanted, what I wanted to talk about today, one of the things that kept coming back to me was because it's another article that had a huge impact on me. And when I had the group, all of the women had to read this article because it, it goes to the core of who we are as Christians, which is the doctrine of authority of scripture. And when authority of scripture becomes so fossilized, that there is no allowance for movement in it, and you begin to recognize that authority of Scripture is bound up in what we call special hermeneutics that only apply to the Bible. We can't, and, and so we don't apply a special hermeneutics to most things in literature or any of the other disciplines. We apply what they call a general hermeneutics because you can look at cultural context. You can look at what was going on in history, but that is not allowed in the Bible. And in doing so, we create a way of reading the Bible that n- is not timeless, it's time-bound. And it becomes calcified uh, because you cannot apply everything that goes on today with an overlay of what went on 2,000 years ago. Not to mention that that was, as you stated earlier, Alan, with, the, with all of the formulations, you have a Greek philosophical ideology being overlaid right onto Christianity. And we still have remnants of it today because it's never been allowed to change. That's heresy to go against it, just like the homeo arguments and all of the, and the Nestorian and all of that. Uh, Theotokos, you can go there too. Um, all of those, those were all Greek ideology and ways of worldviews that were being imprinted and stamped on everything. Whenever I talk about this in class, like I'll teach classes on church history and I'll talk about like the different arguments. It's almost like uh, so foreign to our experience that it like doesn't even matter. Like why would people argue over whether the natures are mixed or unmixed? <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Which was a like, Greek, which was a Greek understanding. They it had, mattered to, it mattered then, to the Greeks. Mm-hmm. But if it doesn't matter to us, then how do we interpret today? How do we make that right. relevant? So how do you make Jesus, how do you make incarnation something that people can hold on to today? So then that's that's the question, because honestly, I, as I would say from my end, it wasn't important to me. In fact, it wasn't until you started that theology group with Kat mm-hmm. and all the others that she started bringing these ideas <laughs> that I immediately first was like, even though we were on a progressive path and we've gone through a lot of stuff, there's certain theologies that I just never even looked at. It was just right. like, okay, this is it. How right. do I now reconcile this way of looking at the incarnation into my new way of looking in the world and recognizing at a point, well... It, it doesn't fit anymore. So now I have to change this idea. And it wasn't until confronted with the papers that Kat would bring home or, or the different uh, books. And I was mm-hmm. like, I don't know about that. That's, that's weird. <laughs> it makes me feel a little uncomfortable <laughs> and really having to process it. And then that next phase, because at that point, I assumed that I was done in church ministry. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't going to go to seminary and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. But when I got back into a teaching situation in a church in a new context, that's for me always when a new idea really solidifies, when I have a chance to communicate it, when I have a chance to encounter people with it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it, you know, it's really only recently that this idea of the incarnation for me that I've even begun to realize that, wow, there's, there's not a lot of differing opinions. And for a while, right. I mean, there are a lot of differing opinions. And for a while, I was looking to the same books, right? And then I recognized, oh, this is an old white guy. This is an old white guy. Oh, man, my bookshelf. I, of course, I'm oh. not getting any other no, options. No, you're not getting any views. Exactly. Echo chamber. Right. Echo chamber. Right. Yeah, if you're not reading any kind of feminist work, feminist theological work, or post-colonial work, and you're not reading women in there, and they're the authors, right. not men are authors, then you're you're missing the boat. 
uh, because they are bringing that because of their experiences and and uh, and and really trapped under colonizing Christianity. And so so when you begin to read from the underside there, you you know, your positions do begin to change right. because of what you're being exposed to. So, so if I may, I want to go yeah. back a little yeah. bit to something what you said, Debbie, and then we can respond to it because I think this is this is interesting. Because in my upbringing, when you talked about Catholicism, because uh, I was a similar Pentecostal, I'm pretty sure we were in the same denomination, <laughs> and uh, you know, Catholicism for majority of my time was you know flat out said viewed as a, a cult, you mm-hmm. know, and then particularly around the idea of saints and Mary. And you mentioned Mary earlier, and I think this might be foreign for a lot of evangelicals, but what? view of incarnation and how does Mary connect with that idea for you? Well, you have to look at the fact that Jesus, well, well okay, let's, let me go back. Theology has never been able to really pay much attention to the body side of incarnation. So bodies are very disruptive to theological formations. And bodies are all we have to be able to relate to one another. The fact that God, I'll call it, say, the divine, because to differentiate between God is the traditional way of understanding the divine as as perhaps a different way of naming and understanding, um, that the divine would actually enter human form in order to be communicated. That is the only way God can officially reach out and touch and hold and 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 be with you in human form. Well, that's pretty powerful. If divinity leaves wherever it is divinity lives and enters humanity, and we believe that the sacred cannot live in corruptness or evilness, how then can bodies be bad? Then bodies must additionally be sacred. Otherwise, and I said this, and you can edit this out if you don't want to hear this, but I was talking about this with Jim last <laughs> night. And I said, if God chose to have divinity arrive through the vagina of a woman, I think that's pretty darn special. And that's pretty darn sacred, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So how does that begin to change how you understand bodies and all of their messiness and complicated? Jesus, as a baby, threw up and pooped everywhere, just like anyone else does. And so how do you account for that? How do you account for the dismissal of bodies in Christian theology and orthodoxy that that demands um, alliance and uniformity to and does not take into consideration any of the experiences of the rest of the world outside whatever that columned silo is. Does that make sense? Can I say three things to that? Sure. Real quick. One, Jeff's mother-in-law has pictures of Jesus breastfeeding all over her house. And I remember seeing it and being like, I don't know how I feel about this, but it's awesome. <laughs> it totally like moves me in a different direction when I was a teenager, right? Or like 20. Uh, that's Julianne of Nor. Yeah, that's Julianne of Norwich. Yeah, brilliant, right? Yeah. Uh, two, yeah. I would say conservative, like traditional Orthodox theology actually did affirm bodies because n- not as a whole, but just in particular to this one tiny point. Gnosticism, which was really popular in early Christianity, taught that bodies were bad and that, you know, God, Jesus must have not had a physical body because this divinity cannot, ha- this incarnation cannot happen. Like it's not, it's not possible because bodies are bad. And so 
one of the earliest Christian like movements in the New Testament was to be like, no, like Jesus did have a real body and like the word made flesh, right? And mm-hmm. John 1 affirmed human bodies as something that can unite with this divinity, which is perfection or whatever. But your point, uh, the third thing, your point that how can we not listen then to the embodied experiences of other people mm-hmm. like all over <laughs> humanity is really well said. Like that's something that – um like I I, I want to like hear more about maybe or like carry with me is that even in saying that bodies are not bad and that the incarnation is this, you know, union of two natures in one person, there still has been in the whole program of orthodoxy a very uh, intentional dismissal of bodied experience. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Well, along with that, I would say for me. You know, you ask, well, how did this, how did bodies not become important? I think, I think you also have to take into account the cultural context of all that kind of stuff. Cause I can honestly say, as I think back for it, my physical form never really entered into the way that I thought about theology or God because my physical form never really affected the way that I moved through everyday life. Right. Like I never was looked at strangely or judged for my physical appearance for right. the most part, except for maybe my frame. And I, you know, come off a little gruff if I'm not talking, you know, but other than those little things, those aren't powerful enough to really inform how I live in the world. And I think that when we talk about incarnation or any kind of connection to God in the physical world, we should be listening to more voices whose who, whose body is connected so much more positively or negative to the way that they move through the world that shapes their experience first and foremost above everything else. And on the list of things that shape the way I look at something, my body is like way, way down on the list. Well, but interestingly enough, in working with women and knowing my own story, bodies very much figure into how a woman understands her place in the world. Yeah. And so, so many women in the group and including myself, the body image, the shaming, um, the orthodox view that the bodies are, especially women's bodies, are not to be touched, that somehow you are dirty, that somehow you are the reason for the fall, um, uh, which I don't even like to use that word, but yeah, to the fall, just so everybody right. understands what we're talking about. you <laughs> got to fall back to your native language. Um, uh, that, 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 that if you, you know, you can't even, I, I know so many women who don't even have any idea what they, what their genitals look like because they're so afraid and have right. been told how awful that is. But yet on your wedding night, you're supposed to become the most experienced wife in the whole world. Right. And so what that sets women up for and other people as well, or people who look different. So, so this whole idea of understanding the, that the bodies are what, God chose to connect with us in our own lives with how we can dismiss them. But patriarchy, imperial religion, I mean, and we are, Christianity is a religion of the empire. We cannot get away from that. Um, um, We're still doing the same things that were done 2,000 years ago, created under Constantine, sanctioned under Constantine, nationalized. 1,800 years ago. Yeah. Yes, 1,600 years ago. 1,800 years. That's a long time. That's a long time for nothing to change. Right. Nothing. Wow. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that, and this is an awkward story for me, so I'm going to – but I'm going to share it anyway. (laughs) Uh, Well, I did, so. So uh, I was was watching Orange is the New Black, Netflix television Mm -hmm. show. And uh, I'm watching through it. I'm fascinated by the way that this, you know, subverts a lot of the way that typical Hollywood or television shows where all the women have varying degrees of personality, mm-hmm. all all the nuance you want in a character that you normally 
women aren't included in. And there's one episode in particular where there's this ongoing conversation between a group of women in the prison about their vagina and which, you know, hole does what. And and I was thinking, this can't be real. Oh, like, it is real. And I went to Kat and I was like, is, is this a common thing where mm-hmm. there's not, there's confusion about your own body? And, and she's like, oh yeah. And I was like, that literally floored me for, for weeks just to show my ignorance of, of women issues and, and where I was. And that was also another, one of those small little things that really affected the way that I viewed theology and wow, you know, th- how much, um, is really there that I'm missing out on because I'm not even opening myself up to people's experiences in the way because that roadblock or that wall of what I was presented as incarnation right. Right. being there and having to chisel through that to to have those moments. Correct me if I'm wrong. What I hear you saying is that if you're going to take incarnation seriously, you have to take seriously the embodied experiences exactly. and what they have to teach theology. Exactly. And not just the white bodies. Right. And not just the able bodies. You have to take all bodies. And you can see that Christianity does not do that by looking around the world at what's going on right now. The refugees, the people that are starving, our inability to seem to be able to do anything, the inability to open up and allow other ways of being church to happen. I mean, you see it everywhere, which are nothing more than than expressions of inability to recognize the embodied experience of who Jesus is. What we have is a society of empire that locks away bodies that are seeking refuge and stuff. And it becomes like a tool, but it comes and it mm-hmm. becomes a tool. It becomes a tool to further instill or operate under racism, sexism, nationalism. And it's so much in the news right now. And you can see that right now with the race with uh, right, oh, what's his name? Moore, Roy, Roy Moore. You see that you see where bodies mean nothing and women's bodies mean double nothing. I mean, and you can see that evolving and and black women's bodies mean even less. So you can just go right down the pyramid of whose bodies are the, are the least looked at. And, and that can't be. God came for all of us. Jesus came for all of us. Those he embodied all of us. So I don't have any issues with God being Jesus being male. Uh, and nobody would have paid attention if Jesus was a woman anyway. So um, you have to you have to look at the context of when that when that happened. And this is probably just like using some of the text in Isaiah for like confessional purposes or apologetic purposes in the New Testament. But there's like remarks to the idea that Jesus was not remarkable in any sense, <laughs> like wasn't a foot taller than anyone or this really impressive person, but just like a regular, a regular dude. I think that's really interesting. In Isaiah? I think in the New Testament. Oh, yeah, in the New I think Testament. They're using, I think they're using Isaiah's um, speaking about a Messiah or something like that. And they're applying it to their own thing. But I think it's interesting that, that there's no physical descriptions of Jesus in the New Testament or in the early church. Like there's no – There is an evangelical church. I, I was <laughs> I was presented a hyper-masculine Jesus every time I turned around to like Wild at Heart and books like that where I felt com- you know, completely inadequate as a person and as a man because I was like, oh I, don't, I don't do any of those things. Uh, I'm scared of spiders. I don't like to be outside for very long. Like all those things that I was just like – but they have this very like masculine description of who Jesus is and even use it to <laughs> perpetuate hierarchy yeah. and perpetuate oppression yeah. for people that, that don't look like the way that they've described Jesus from really obscure passages or assumptions as, as far as that's concerned about who Jesus that was. Painting, that painting of Jesus as a boxer in the ring. <laughs> have oh, you seen that? Gosh. Well, uh, <laughs> Carmen, the champion, <laughs> <Did> human <laughs> the videos champion. on that thing forever. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's so great. Um, I, I think that, uh, and this is probably a side topic to incarnation. It, it's related though, and we don't have to necessarily tackle it right now, but there's a really large divide in Christianity over like the virgin birth, whether it actually happened or not. Like I would say a lot of scholars that I read and interact with and move around with don't believe that the virgin birth this historical. And it's something that like I'm currently in process with. Like that's what I wrote in my paper for ordination and something I'm thinking through. Mm -hmm. But I can see how like setting aside historical questions and stuff like that, how the the idea of a virgin birth would just strengthen the idea that bodies are bad, right? That like Mary's body, if she conceived through – normal means would somehow be like tainted or whatever. At least that's how it's interpreted later. You know, like later early church fathers, people who came hundreds of years after Jesus had came and gone, um, looked backward and said like, oh yeah, it makes sense that she was a virgin because he would have been like sinful somehow if she had had sex because sex is sinful and that's you the know, body. virgin things, bodies are Things important. of the body. Things of the body are evil. Things of the mind right, are great. Right. Maleness that's got the greatness. Women got the evilness. So that's the way it worked out. Bad deal for us. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so when we talk about incarnation and all yeah. that kind of stuff, is the imprint in Genesis uh, chapter 2 of us bearing the image of God, uh-huh. how would you differentiate that as – would you call that as a type of incarnation or is Jesus's incarnation or Jesus's indwelling of the divine different somehow than just everyone else? Well, that depends on whether when, – when you first ask if I wanted to do this or I would do, take part in this today. I said to Jim, oh, I can't wait to take about talk about incarnation. And I'm like, wait a second. He said the incarnation. Can you talk <laughs> about incarnation and incarnation or the incarnation? Right. Are, there, are those little articles make a huge difference in what you're saying? But I believe that Jesus can be incarnate in just about anyone or anything. The divine can become apparent and tangible through many, many different ways. That, and, and think about through, on the road to Emmaus, how Jesus becomes visible in the company of, in the context of breaking bread and having community. So I would say that when we had General Thursday, that, that definitely that was a very much of an incarnational time, that Jesus definitely was manifest or incarnate among us in the women, in the breaking of the bread, in the stories, and the experiences of telling how, um, uh, how God had met us, or how we had been angry, or any of that. So I don't have any issues with trying to, and I'll say, pour divinity into encounters of of Christ among varying people. And and if you're open to that, if you're open to where the Spirit is taking you and how to show you those things, they become manifest for you. And I've seen it too many times, had it happened to me too many times, to just say there's nothing there. That's not true. It has to be this only way. If I don't think about um, incarnation as only Jesus and not as a way to connect into the divine, that means I have to connect with other people as well. I don't know. It sounds like heresy to me. I th- but. <laughs> no, I think we're totally there. Like I think there's very few people even listening who would disagree with that. Um there was a mystic who was considered her- heretical in like the 1200s who said that in his Christmas Eve sermon that uh, Jesus has to be born in every generation. And like, I, I loved that. I well, love that idea I that there's, there's like there. this incarnational there. incarnational thing. That's the word you used um, uh, happening now, you know, not just in uh, the historical person of Jesus, but 
in so many different like ways and things. But what about like the the, the person of Jesus? Is that even a question for you or something? No, that's important? no, like, it's not the person of Jesus as maleness. No, that and the virgin birth. You know, I, I don't I don't get hung up on the virgin birth. It's not a deal. It's not a deal breaker for me. I'm, you know, you can't explain that anyway. So it's like, why even try? You I guess the question I have is like, is Jesus God? You know, like that's that. And that this is just for me personally. And I'm not trying to say that there is one right answer or yeah. not. But like, I worship Jesus, right? And is that uh, appropriate? And how does the incarnation like touch on that? And all those questions are things that I have. And so I'm just kind of wondering where, where you both are at. Like, is Jesus fully God? Because I would say I'm not fully God. You know what I mean? I exist in God. Like, there's no part of me that that's not uh, connected to God because my existence comes from God. So in those ways, I can say that, like, you know, um, but but I'm I'm not God in the flesh. You know, I'm not God made manifest to humanity. I'm not the connection of God and humanity. Um, I can become that through like working with the spirit, through communion, through all sorts of things. But when I look at Jesus as a minister or as a Christian, I see fully God and fully human like in one thing. And that to me is like a focal point for my worship. And I think if I step away from that, in what sense do I even worship Jesus or is it appropriate to worship Jesus? You know, sorry, I don't don't mean to. Well, I don't don't (laughs) think it matters. I mean, I don't think it matters. I don't think Jesus, I don't think divinity says this is the way you have to do it. And if you don't do it like this, it doesn't really count. And so if you think this, I mean, you're trying to work out your theology in the only way you can. That's through your own lens, your own understanding, and all the tools that are available to you, your experiences. And I, I just I, – the formulations that, that – the ones that are just stuck in concrete. I don't know why we think we have to to fall within that category and do the what-ifs. Why not just experience it and see what happens? If you do it this way, does it change how you understand God? If you don't do it that way, does Jesus seem any less to you? Do you experience Jesus in any other ways other than when you see Jesus only as an incarnational, incarnational fully God, fully human? Just so yeah, like much emphasis, and, so much emphasis right. on this thinking thing. And you have to have categories to be able to have thought processes. I understand that. But I think theology is, is so can be so fluid. I think incarnation can be so fluid and we try to make it very rigid it can be water and we make it ice yeah and and i'm right now in the in the moment of everything melting i would say right now like you know i do encounter jesus as a spiritual teacher who has really deep wisdom to show that the divine is within all of us the light is us in us and accessible to all people and like some of the almost like Zoroastrian stuff. Like I, I, I have lots of different ways of interacting with Jesus, but what I have to like come to terms with like worshiping Jesus as God is something that I've always done. And it's something I'm still doing and it has meaning for me. Mm -hmm. And is that something that is essential for Christianity? Like I have people in my church, right. Who see Jesus as like a spiritual teacher. And that's, that, that's what it is. And they, and they follow the path, right? So I, I'm like, you know, you're my brother, you're mm-hmm. my sister, you're my, you're my sibling because uh, you and I are both walking this path together of following after the teachings of Jesus. That's awesome. But I feel like for me, there's, there's, uh, at least in my thinking for my own self, this has nothing to do with anyone else, but like there's a categorical, di- categorical difference in my heart between 
following someone as an enlightened teacher or the spirit inspires a person and the idea of incarnation, those things are just radically different. It's one thing to say that God spoke through a person or a text or something else like that. And it's another thing to say this person's God, you know, like those two things to me are like, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe that distinction doesn't matter at all. But for me, I know in my own worship that it does. And so I'm trying to sort out like, what do you hold on to? What do you not hold on to? That kind of stuff, you know? Well, it's very, very binary. That's a very binary way of thinking. And we can't help it. That's what we've been indoctrinated into with our Western way of thinking is binary thinking, which creates for us the inability to move beyond either one of those categories. So it, it, it isn't, perhaps it isn't an either or, perhaps the both and. Right. In other that's words. That's kind of how it is right now for me. <laughs> and that's an uncomfortable place. It is a both place. and. That's yeah. uncomfortable mm-hmm. because we all like certainties, and especially when it comes to the divine. We want those. Especially, cer- especially Alan. <laughs> yeah, especially Alan, because you want to make it to heaven. And so you might got to make sure you're doing all the right things uh, to get there. But no, it becomes very binary. And that. Sorry, oh, well, I've just been sold a lot of bullshit in my life, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't we all? And like, I don't, I'm not interested in propagating that and yeah. telling people that they need to follow the bullshit. You know what I mean? So I, I, if I want to be clear about stuff, it's because when I was a little kid, I was taught you can ask as many questions as you want. You may not always get the answer, and you definitely not always get the answer you want, but the questions are totally appropriate. Sure. And so, sure. like, my spirituality is to continually ask questions. And functionally right now, I am not in a binary place. I'm both and. I'm reading, you know, John Dominic Crossan's The Historical Jesus Stuff, like looking at Jesus as a revolutionary or just as like this peasant who's inspiring other peasants kind of thing and not necessarily God come in the flesh. And also uh, historical church fathers who like you know, are Greek Orthodox uh, theologians who talk about theosis and how like the synergy between God and humans and being brought into the Trinity and stuff. And all that stuff informs me at the same time. Um, well, Alan, you know that that <laughs> Jesus was either – a man, a liar, a lunatic. I mean, those are your only three <laughs> options. <laughs> yeah, I'm beyond those like very simple ways of encountering God or encountering Jesus and like our tradition. I would say that because I am dealing with asking all these questions and dealing with all of it. But I think for a lot of like maybe even listeners who are who are going through this for the first time or still figuring it out, like that's the big question. Let's just say for a second, and I know if questions or whatever, but if Jesus wasn't God, first of all, anything in my past that like decreased the humanity of Jesus is like heresy, right? And so that's what I grew up with. I grew up with a Jesus and an incarnation that taught that Jesus, I couldn't relate to Jesus. I could relate to everyone. I remember having like a very real thought in elementary school or junior high. Like I can relate to all the different people in the Bible, Moses, Abraham, uh, David, especially, right? Uh, but I, and Paul, I cannot relate to Jesus because Jesus isn't human like me, you know? Like there's that real, real feeling for it. But like if Jesus is not God, that does change the way that I do theology. Do you get what I'm saying? Kind of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, I hear the struggle. Oh, my Jesus. I hear the struggle. I hear the struggle, and I hear right. several different things that, that are being struggled with in that conversation. Uh, but I'm going to bring it back to bodies. Let's go back to bodies, because you cannot, you cannot escape incarnation without thinking about bodies. Bodies always come back to disrupt, whether it be, they always do. Either female bodies or black bodies or brown bodies or maimed bodies. Um, Bodies always come back to disrupt theology, and theology has to do something with that. 
And incarnation is very much one of those. So incarnation, I mean, Mother Teresa, look at Mother Teresa. I think that her work probably was very much an incarnational ministry. She was so concerned about bodies. And Jesus was concerned about bodies. Jesus was very concerned about bodies. So for me, there's a lot of room for focusing not so much on the godness of the incarnation, but on the body of incarnation. And if Jesus, as we are taught, truly was human, um, then Jesus had a lot of messiness there too, and that must be okay because God chose the human body to interact with human beings. And still does. (laughs) And still does. And still does. Yeah. And people you wouldn't even expect it of. So there's no, oh, it has to be done in church. And oh, yes, I can see Jesus and, and Jeff. But no, to the person on the street or something or someone who does something for you or just all of a sudden it's visible, it's clear. I heard a liberation preacher talk about like, well, no, we made progress when the uh, desecration of black bodies in the street is like the burning of temples. We don't respond to it the same way. And no. I think that that's, that was really fascinating to me. Something that I'm like, I'm just now moving in. Right. And we, we mentioned this last week, but I think for me, especially, one of the things that makes it difficult to move into that place of holding a body as sacred is this extreme view on, on how depraved we are or how mm-hmm. useless we are without right. without God. And uh, I mean, the more I feel like the more I move forward, the, for, the more I'm just so against this idea that there's anything about humanity that's bad, because that was never it was established from the beginning we are good. And it was never undone. There's no other place after that in scripture mm-hmm. or anything that says, well, never mind, you know, you, you sinned or whatever. The very, the very way that God nurtured Adam and Eve out of the garden right, 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 says right. volumes about how good they still were as, right. as physical beings. Right. And uh, to really embrace that is important because I think that we, we, we lose that so many times. Well, we do. We, we do. And, and again, I go back to bodies that are abused and broken. Matter of fact, the, one of the first, one of the first times I got to actually start to explore using that kind of, or expanding that kind of theology was when I was working at the church in San Luis and I got invited to go to the women's shelter to come and talk to them. They, they said about our faith and actually Sarah O was there and she's the one who, that's how I met her. And so I went and talked about atonement because I felt Well, our tenets of faith are no different than the Methodists or the Lutherans, really, uh, or even the evangelical churches. We all hold the same doctrines. So let me talk about something that really affects women who are uh, suffering from domestic violence, and that was atonement. And so, so I gave a little talk to their staff, and Sarah ended up coming to church because she was so shocked to hear someone who would talk the way I did. It was so outside the um, prescribed um, sermons that she had heard or the messages that she had heard. Her dad is a uh, Chinese immigrant pastor, so very conservative and very conservative. So anyway, she started coming to church and that's how she came to church. But there was a purpose in me telling you that. Now I've gone down the road and forgotten what that was. But <laughs> that's think, appropriate here. <laughs> thinking <Yes. laughs> about, but thinking about just how thinking about these women who are told they are now bad because of what's been done to them or a woman who is raped um, or somehow assaulted. All these women who are told this is so, I mean, they are told they are now so bad or not believed because of what's done to their bodies uh, that I began to really have a shift in understanding how deep the negation of human bodies is inside of theology. Which is so ironic to me. 
as someone who's like, you know, studying biblical studies for so many years, mm-hmm. the great evil of empire is the negation of a body, right? Mm-hmm. In the New mm-hmm. Testament. Mm-hmm. And the here we do it. Crucifixion. I know. And then our theology just does it. That's, but it can't help. But it couldn't help but be that way because the, the the very people who were the philosophers of the Roman Empire became the theologians. Right. So there is no way for that not to happen. There just isn't. So Christianity forever changed when it was sanctioned by the Roman Empire forever. So 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 the point is, it's not that that's wrong. It's just it's not complete. It's not the whole story. It stops short of being allowed to express the fullness of who Jesus is. It's one very focused form. lens. It's a very well. focused mm-hmm. and very narrow lens. Yes. And I think that's something I want, like, at least the listeners of our podcast to, to really, like, sit with, is that feminist theology, post-colonialism, everything that we've been talking about for, like, two or three years – is not a way of just uh, you know undoing and throwing away tradition. It's a way of opening it up to what it really is. Well, it's you know? opening it's up to allow been... to allow the other bodies to be able to get in and 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 speak their experiences of the divine, and that's what's not been allowed. So, so what I'm trying to say like all those traditions were given to us by embodied people, mm-hmm. right? People who had different experiences too. And so when you have one lens to look at all of that, you're actually missing all of the the fullness of it, especially like. And on the other side when it comes to interpretation and stuff. But um, anyway, that's just an aside. Right. So any final thoughts? Like what what do we want to take away? Because obviously we're talking we're talking a lot about the theological implications and how that's changed over. But the reality of it is and any theology is going to affect the way that we live life and especially the way that we view and treat other people. So as we're kind of in the midst of the the holiday season that's celebrating a very specific event in the incarnation history. Uh, what, where does that leave us as, as progressive Christians? How and why is our view of the incarnation important in the way that we move forward in our lives? You go first, Alan. <laughs> I really like, I really like what we've been talking about. What you brought up, Debbie, is that like, if we're going to use the incarnation, why not use it to show that like, Bodies are important and important for even understanding the incarnation and important for understanding theology or God or the divine or or truth in general, like the quote you mentioned. Mm-hmm. I like that. That being the entry point is that you, you start with bodies, right? You don't end there. <laughs> you don't like add that as an extra thing. That's what we have and in the incarnation. And I like that. I, I like that a lot from like a preaching perspective, from a progressive pr- Christian perspective. I also like the idea of consent, even though if we don't believe in the virgin birth or whatever, the tradition is that Mary consents, right, to this union of human and divine. I think for me in my own personal spirituality, consent's important. I am not always consenting to God's agenda. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or to the synergy between me and, and the spirit. And that's mm-hmm. something that I want to do. And uh, I have lots of, I have lots more questions than I have answers now, you know? <laughs> me too. It's what we do here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Create more questions. Uh, yeah. I mean, for me, it's just really trying to think about what that means to open up to bodies being sacred. In the eyes of Jesus, we're all the same. I mean, Jesus hung out with the poorest of the poor, the ones that were despised and rejected. Including them is what got him killed and rejecting all of the tenants of the religious community. Well, that should speak volumes to us of who we should be hanging out with, who we should be helping. 
which I think is going to make a great segment into our last segment. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. And, you know, I'll just add to all that. Ditto. You know, (laughs) yeah, that's how I feel too. (laughs) Wholeheartedly agree. And I think that I think more than ever, the way that our current American culture is the idea of bodies and consent and like all of these things are so prevalent and, and, really expressing like where we are and revealing to us this struggle and divide and hopefully transition into something better Mm -hmm. as we move forward. And the more we have these conversations in every context, in a business context, let alone a spiritual Christian context, like these conversations should be everywhere in new ways and in new places that, uh, that embody a, a divine nature that accepts and is open and reflects all experience. All the messinesses of life. Right. I had a, one of the women in the group wrote a poem about the life of Jesus as a boy. And she and it was really a beautiful poem. And she talked about, you know, Mary, did Jesus suck his thumb? You know, Mary, did Jesus spit up on your shoulder? All the things that a baby would do and a child and a toddler. And it was really a delightful poem because you don't ever think about Jesus being a child and having dirty diapers or throwing up formula or not formula, but throwing up milk. And you don't think about that kind of stuff. But yet, if Jesus was human, then Jesus experienced all of that. So those all become very sacred as far as uh, how we understand life itself and and the and the progress of life i just for me that's a really really beautiful idea to think about jesus who is fully god and however that happens i don't know and i don't have to figure that out um and even to articulate it i don't have to figure it out because it's a mystery how do you explain that which is unexplainable right since we only use metaphors to do it anyway I used to always tell my students, uh, think about Jesus tripping. <laughs> think about him throwing up. Uh, Wait, like tripping, like falling over or taking yeah, drugs? as a teenager. I was a teenager. Oh, taking drugs. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but like but like walking as a teenager and just tripping and falling on his face, you know, okay. like you, you don't well, think about. Yeah. All right. Well, let us uh, let us know what you think. Uh, to add your voice to this particular conversation, you can comment in the show notes at irenacast.com slash 108. Also in the show notes, you'll find relevant links and a complete list of all the other ways you can like, follow, and contact the show. That's irenacast.com slash 108. And we'll include uh, a link to the episode that Debbie was on previously with uh, Kat, my wife, and Mona. And uh, yeah, so on the other side of the music, we are going to be (laughs) – we're going to be discussing our experience with Santa Claus. So our tradition here on Irenicast is that whenever we have a guest host uh, to come on and we give them the opportunity to pick what segment, you know, we do a variety of different segments, Jesus Juke, Title Me This, all that kind of stuff. And uh, Debbie presented to us a very interesting segment that I think fits well with our idea and our conversation on incarnation. Uh, but she posed the question to all of us, when did you stop? Well, let me, I'll, I'll let you When did you question. find out Santa wasn't real? Right. <laughs> He's not real. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, Jeff, you want to start? I don't know. I can't remember a time where I believed that Santa was real. Hmm. Maybe that's just sad. (laughs) But uh, 
my mom was Cynic pretty Trevor. like heavy handed with the whole Santa thing up until like even last year she would sign gifts from Santa. <laughs> I remember uh, that dude. And I got lots of those too. I don't, I don't know if this was just like a prophecy for how I would encounter the rest of the world and my religious experience going forward. But the minute I started asking questions about Santa and my mom's like harsh response of no, it just is like, no, like there's no room. You just believe this or it's not. That's when I was like, okay, never mind. <laughs> this is silly. I'm glad that whoever's calling themselves Santa is bringing me presents, but I'm just going to leave it at that. So that was, I, there's, I don't how really. How old were you? How old were you when, oh. when you have recollection of that? How old it, were you? you it, I was definitely. Your mom. That's the question. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I think it was five or six. It was definitely before I was seven. Okay. Um, wow. Okay. And uh, so, yeah, it was, it was never, I never had any like magical moments. You know what I mean? Like, I never, <laughs> like, I had the sense of wonder, but it was always in a different way where it was just, I was just trying to figure things out as opposed to, I had to learn to sit in things, to experience things. And that was something that I had to really create a discipline for because hmm. my default is, well, that's not real. That's, that's not right. <laughs> it's just everything. That's just, that's just where I'm at. Thank you. <laughs> I had so many magical moments. You oh my did. Gosh. Okay. Well, let's hear. Yeah. When did you find out? When did you find out? Santa oh, my dad used to like, you know, we'd go in the backyard and there'd be bikes and stuff. And my dad would point in the sky and be like, can you see it? Can you see the sleigh? We'd be like, yeah, I can see it. Even if we can't or not. And, uh, really believed in Santa Claus until I don't know, sometime in elementary school. And, uh, my uncle used to always go to take a shower whenever Santa Claus would come and he would like knock on the, the wall or the roof or whatever. So it sounded like Santa was here and we'd all go running outside and then there'd be presents on the ground and stuff. And there was one year where my uncle, my dad's brother, was smiling too much when he came back from his shower upstairs, you know, like <laughs> he was drying his hair, like pretending like he was busy or whatever when he was the one pounding on the wall. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, mm, he's smiling a little too much and he missed Santa Claus. So I don't know how, why he'd be smiling if he wasn't here when Santa Claus came. There's going to be a lot you know of explanations mean? for that, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I like, I kind of put two and two together and, but I was a believing a little kid. I mean, I've told this before, but I had night terrors until I was like, I don't even know how old, 10 years old. And when I was really little, I used to pray to everything. Jesus, the tooth fairy, uh, <laughs> the lucky charms box guy, like literally everybody. And I just needed someone to help me. And Santa Claus was one of them. So. And how old were you when you figured that out? I mean, I mean, no, not <laughs> bad. But like, right now, 42. How would I figured um, out that the lucky charms guy wasn't no. <laughs> real? I don't know. <laughs> no, just Santa. Just Santa. Santa? Uh, I don't know. I, it's really, really hard for me to place like maybe second or third grade. I just took a confession from a friend who said he was like 12 or 13, like way too old. <laughs> he was really embarrassed. Oh, that's great. <laughs> like that's great. he totally believed his parents. Oh, that's so funny. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe like second grade or third grade. I, I don't really remember. Well, my experience is burned into my memory. Oh, I no. was. Seventh grade. I mean, seventh grade. I was seven so, years okay. old going in. I, I was in the second grade. And and I don't remember magical Santa moments or anything like that. Of course, you know, my dad was a pastor. So um, those always rested side by side, which is an interesting conversation as well. But I began to figure it out because I can remember distinctly telling my mom, I don't know if there's a Santa or not. And she just said, huh. And she wouldn't answer me any way or give any indication whether I was thinking right or wrong. 
And I said, I'm going to put cookies and milk up for Santa tonight. And if Santa's real, Santa will eat the cookies. And if Santa's not real, Santa will not. So when I got up in the morning and went running out there, everything was still there. That's awful, dude. Oh, no. That is so bad. I'm sorry. That's I know hard. It. And oh my god. That's when I knew Santa wasn't real. And you left your fleece out for the dew and it didn't I come. I did. And... I did. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and a theological deconstructionist was born. <laughs> I know it. I know it. So but I got to, you know but I got to I, well at least I got to at least see a little bit different picture when my kids, their dad, right. their dad um, really put a lot of effort into that and would like make soot footprints leading away from the Aww. fireplace and all that kind of stuff. I love that. Uh, and I don't remember how old they were, but I'll tell you, I didn't tell them my experiences until they already knew because that would be everything. But yeah, that was really traumatic. I don't know why my mother did that. That feels very passive aggressive, right? <laughs> like, how are we going to tell her there's no Santa? Oh, wait. Let's just not <laughs> Let's just do not it. Do- it's like, well, here's a totally, totally presented itself. Let's just use it. <laughs> you know, I know. It. Parents' dilemma. Oh, well, we'll oh, go for it. Oh, my gosh. Right. I think I believed in leprechauns longer than Santa because <laughs> I'm Irish, probably. You know, you leave your shoes out on the fireplace and they put yeah. coins in it and stuff. Yeah. Well, I and certainly like, still believe in the magic of cereal mascots. <laughs> dust uh, everywhere. Oh, that's probably why I believed in the the freaking uh, Lucky Charms guys because my parents would like on uh, St. Patrick's Day would like – leave little flakes of gold dust everywhere and stuff like that. Like there was a leprechaun who came here. That was more exciting than Santa Claus to me. Right. I, st- I still hold that superstition. I've said this several times, but if the captain isn't on my box of Captain Crunch, I can't eat the generic stuff. Like there, oh <laughs> And I don't have any magical thinking, and I know why. It was killed when I was seven <laughs> it years was old. Mur- it was murdered. <laughs> that is the most savage Christmas story I've ever heard. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. You, isn't that, isn't that a That's bad worse one? than like your older brother. I think my older brother tried to telling me one time maybe like one year but like that's way worse running out there on christmas morning well oh my gosh what did you do did you still sell did you still open up presents and stuff oh sure oh yeah we still had presents and everything (laughs) but it was just like oh okay it's mom and dad that get it santa's not real it's like okay but jesus is so we have the gift of jesus i was like so yeah well, so the syncretism, I mean, the syncretism between, you know, between, which would have been a good conversation too, the syncretism between Christianity and secular and Santa Claus and secular mm-hmm. Christmas is really an interesting, so. I think we just picked our next year's hollow, our Christmas special. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about Santa and Jesus. Yeah. I especially love the Santa that's kneeling at the nativity scene. Mm. My all-time favorite. Yeah, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. That's really did, good. Did you eat the cookies after you found out it was Probably. Real? Probably. I would have. Just out of pure finding comfort in food. <laughs> I don't remember I don't remember feeling like devastated though. I think I already was really I just needed an affirmation yeah. and um but yeah, but I don't have much magical thinking, I'll tell you and I wonder if that uh, uh, stopped it right Start there. all there that Christmas morning. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. It's funny that you mentioned like kids cuz now I'm I think this is going to be the real first Christmas that the girls are going to remember mm-hmm. and pick up and uh I, I I have these conversations with both of them. But they have, for some, they've already created this elaborate way of telling stories, especially Cadence. She just, she creates these narratives out of nowhere. And we'll, she'll ask about Santa, I'll ask a question. And then she has these like thoughtful pauses where she's weighing what next question she's going to ask based on what I just told her. And then sometimes she just takes off and says, oh, okay, I get it. And then 
forms this whole narrative. So I don't know. I, I think I'm just going to have to play into the narratives that she presented as opposed to like trying to create something. But she's You're just going to encourage this. your children's delusions. I <laughs> absolutely <laughs> am in more ways than I possibly can. Uh, we, <laughs> we went to go see, uh, if, if you listen uh, on my other podcast, Divine Cinema, that just posted, uh, this last Thursday, uh, we reviewed the movie, The Star that just came out in the theater. So it's like an animated, uh, movie about the nativity and all the animals, mm-hmm. how they helped Jesus get to the the mm-hmm. manger and all that kind of stuff. And I took the girls with me. And before I had told them that they really want to see <laughs> Thor Ragnarok. They want to see Thor and Hulk <laughs> on the, <laughs> on the screen. So, Christmas uh, story too. so we went, uh, we went to the movie and about 10 minutes in, uh, one of my daughters turns to me and says, when's, when's the Hulk going to come <laughs> I said, oh, no, that's 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 not this movie. And then when we left in the car, uh, one of my daughters had this wonderful, like, elaborate story about how, well, if Hulk was there, then the bad guy wouldn't have been able to get there. <laughs> it's just this. It was wonderful. Anyway, that's a total side note. But it's it's kids really change that whole shape of. Well, they know. change what you think you're going to do with your children. Right, too. Right. You may think you're not going to do this with your children, but then when they get there, they're like. Well, of course, I'm going to carry on that tradition. I'm not right. going to break their hearts. Yeah. Suddenly, you're painting <laughs> footprints on the ground. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And taking bites of cookies and drinking milk. Oh. Right. <laughs> and we, we mentioned this off air, but Alan uh, congratulated me recently on actually dressing up for Halloween because yes. I haven't done that I in did. years and I'm years. I'm so proud of you, Jeff. And uh, I did this year, and then I have a Christmas sweater for this year. And I can honestly say 100% that's because of my daughters. It's uh-huh. just like, well, I don't want it to be not fun for them. So. Yeah. I'll go ahead and do it. So. You can tolerate things a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Kids. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you have to buy into them, but you can certainly join in the experience. Right. Right. Hopefully I'll hold some of my ground, but I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Merry Christmas, both of you. And thank you, Merry Debbie, so much Christmas. for coming on. Oh, it's thank you so awesome much. It's been, oh, it's been great fun. Let's do it again. Yes. Anytime. You're okay. always welcome to come Alrighty. on the show. Okay. Um, uh, is there anything that we can direct people towards? Do you have anything in the works as far as... A public outpouring of your knowledge. <laughs> no, people can find me on Facebook, and okay. <laughs> I'll be happy to engage with people there. And um, not right yet, thinking about what I'm going to do and what I'm going to open up, but that hasn't come yet. We just moved, and so I've had my plate pretty full. All right. Well, it, the first thing you put out there, we will we will let people know because okay. we're we, you've had an influence on on this show probably more than you realize. So <laughs> we appreciate it. You are more than welcome, uh, Alan. What do you have going on? How can people find what you're doing? Uh, two things. If you're in the Roseville area or Northern California, Intersections is meeting again this week. You can find them on Facebook or meet up and figure out when you can show up. But that's basically a brick and mortar version of the podcast where we just talk about a topic and people are kind of all over the place. There's ex Seventh day Adventists. There's people who are atheists, people who are like struggling with different questions. And then we're all just sitting and eating together and drinking and, and talking. And it's super wonderful. Um, <clears throat> so you can find me there. Uh, also I'm, I'm spearheading a group that is, Doing education on immigration detention. I found out in my town that there's 165 quote unquote beds uh, under a contract since 2013 for ICE to fill. And so they actively work really hard to make sure that people are in those beds. Um, and so there are <clears throat> people who are detained for six months to a year. Um, 
not because of a crime or anything, just because they're not documented and <clears throat> they're deciding whether or not that they're going to be deported. And so, you know, a father of three gets picked up um, off of his construction job that he was planned, you know, for Travis Air, Air Force Base. This just happened recently. And uh, he's been serving in a homeless shelter for several years. He you know goes to church. He's a big part of his community, has a couple of kids, and they just pick him up and throw him in jail for six months to a year. And uh, they don't call it jail, but that's effectively what it is. And they don't have the same <clears> – <throat> they're not given the same rights as like the general population of of this specific detention center that I visited. Anyway, all that to say, I am spearheading a program for educating people about justice issues surrounding this and how to get involved as uh, different types of communities, a lot of communities of faith, but also other communities as well. And um, this month, we're going to be doing our first presentation and forum, and um, we're going to see how that goes. Me and a bunch of leaders of this group called Civic in Northern California. So more to come on that in the future. And if you have a community you want me to invite me to, I may be uh, willing to come see you and educate yours. Sounds good. We'll have the information. You can always look at Alan's information. It's all in the show notes. And uh, you can follow me on all the socials at Jeff Manildi, at J-E-F-F-M-A-N-I-L-D-I, and listen on the second and fourth Thursday to my other podcast, uh, Divine Cinema, where we review, analyze, and critique um, movies with themes of faith. And uh, some good, some not so good, and some really good. Uh, as for Irenicast the show, if you enjoy what we do here, uh, please recommend us to a friend or leave a rating and review on wherever you listen, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, or wherever. And uh, we would really appreciate it. And if you'd like to take your support of the show to the next level, consider going to irenicast.com slash Amazon before you make your next purchase. And just shop as usual, and we'll receive a small percentage of your purchase without any extra cost to you. That's uh, That helps us a little bit covering some of the cost and all that kind of stuff, but we're never not going to be around unless something, you know, horrible happens. So we're not throwing out that, <laughs> that veiled threat of if you want to keep hearing us for free, then do this, but we would just appreciate it. Uh, so for this week, I'm Jeff. I'm Alan. I'm Debbie. Thanks for joining the conversation. Thank you.